Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by Paul Hanlon. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. On the last episode of the podcast, I hosted Ali Wine to discuss his new book, America's Great Power Opportunity. For this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Anushka Wijasingha to discuss the economic and political challenges facing Sri Lanka and China's role in the crisis. Before I dive into the interview with Anushka, let me first introduce him. Anush is an economist and an international consultant. He's worked with the World Bank, the International Trade Center, and the Asian Development Bank. He's also a co-founder of the Center for a Smart Future, an Asian-based think tank. Anush serves on the board of directors of three leading financial services companies, Ceylon Bank, Fair First Insurance, and HMB Finance PLC. Anush has published widely in national and international publications focusing on international trade, investment, and economic competitiveness. And he previously served as an advisor to the Ministry of International Trade in Sri Lanka. And before that, he was the chief economist of the Ceylon Chamber of Commerce. He's also a member of the Monetary Policy Consultative Committee of the Central Bank of Sri Lanka. And he's worked in Korea as an Asian Foundation Development Fellow at the Korean Development Institute. Anush was twice named 40 Under 40 Most Influential Sri Lankans by Echelon Magazine. Anush, thank you very much for joining me today, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thanks, Paul. It's great to join you on this. Let me start out, if we could, just to talk a little bit about the development of the debt crisis in Sri Lanka. Um, our listeners will have seen on April 12th of this year, Sri Lanka Central Bank unilaterally suspended external debt payments. And then one month later, on May 19th, Sri Lanka fell into, into a debt default uh, for and a, the first time in its history. Uh, some have said that it's the most severe economic crisis that Sri Lanka has experienced since it achieved independence in 1948. The COVID-19 pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, these have all played a role in price surges but there's also been important political and economic factors at play. And I wanted to just start out by asking you if you could just walk us through your perspectives, the ongoing economic crisis in Sri Lanka, and what, from your view, are the most significant domestic and international factors that led to the economic crisis and the related political distress that we see today? So, Paul, um, the ongoing crisis has been over a decade at least in the making even though you know much of the recent media coverage and external commentary about it has focused more on what has happened in the last couple of years mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but perhaps you could talk more about that later so in, in my mind the current manifestation of the crisis um, began with the constitutional coup of October 2018 when the then president um, Sirisena sacked the Prime Minister, Ranil Vikramasinghe, who incidentally is now the president, mm -hmm. and installed the defeated former president, Mahindra Rajapaksa. So just in that whole bit, you can imagine all of what has gone on. It, it was a shock move. 
and it was illegal, as the courts determined a few months later, and caused a huge amount of political distress. You know, Sri Lanka really hadn't ever seen that kind of unconstitutional uh, power grab before, and it, it spooked investors. Um, mm. There was a political fallout that followed um, that led to a breakdown in governance. And to a great extent, it was the backdrop for the Easter Sunday terror bombings a few months later in, uh, in April 2019. Um, this, of course, hit tourism very hard, which is a big um, export income earner. The government had to jettison its fiscal consolidation plans. Uh, it had a program with the IMF at the time and pull out all the fiscal stops to help the economy recover, uh, especially because they were heading into election season. And typically in Sri Lanka, incumbent governments tend to throw fiscal candy at the voter base ahead of elections. Mm. Um, those elections brought in a new regime who, uh, in, in a bid to win over the business community, campaigned hard on introducing you know, a slew of generous tax cuts. and. Um, that was implemented, as promised, very quickly, and it really damaged an already uh, precarious fiscal position. And within months, uh, the rating agencies quickly downgraded Sri Lanka's sovereign rating, and we were downgraded so much that it effectively locked us out of international capital markets and eliminated any chance of being able to refinance uh, the maturing sovereign bonds, which were already bunching up. So, uh, of course, then we had COVID, which again cut off tourism earnings for around two years. Worker remittances, which is another big uh, foreign income earner, was uh, slashed. Exports were affected. So which with each incident, an, another nail was being hit into the coffin. Mm. Um, the government at the time took a series of uh, bad policy decisions. Uh, it decided not to pursue an emergency agreement with the IMF to kind of uh, support its balance of payments position, which a lot of other countries did in the context of COVID. And the, 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 the leaders at the time said Sri Lanka would follow a so-called homegrown solution. We have it covered. Um, the government banned a range of imports to kind of preserve foreign currency reserves, ranging from cars to refrigerators, and famously, agri agrochemicals. Mm. Um, uh, they were completely banned on, almost overnight under the guise of a shift to organic farming. And I know there's been a lot said in some parts of the media in the US, particularly the right-wing media, that all of this was all done to pacify so-called ESG lobbies, as they called it. But it was really not at all that. It was just because we didn't have the dollars. So this slashed agricultural output um, and many farmers and districts around Sri Lanka that rely on farming went into deep distress. And I think that was perhaps when the electorate began to resent the government. That was kind of the beginning, mid last year. And this was uh, middle of 2021. That's what you're talking about. That's right. Middle of 2021, we saw a farmer protest. And it was interesting because the Rajapaksa regime, um, President Gotabe Rajapaksa at the time and his brother before that, counted on the farming community as one of its strongest vote bases. Mm -hmm. um, so when farmers got out onto the streets protesting against the government, 
you knew there was uh, something that that was turning. Mm. Uh, things just got worse from there because clearly there was no longer feasible solution to the forex crisis. Um, politicians and key officials at the central bank and treasury were adamant about not seeking any IMF support. Um, and then, of course, we didn't have any buffers against what happened with oil prices and wheat prices after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Um, dollar reserves reportedly fell to less than $10 million on the day that the government announced the debt standstill in mid-April. Imagine that. Um, but by then, the damage was done. There was no fuel, no cooking gas, a shortage of critical medicines, and uh, several categories of food items. Uh, and by then, the political damage was also done. People had uh, just had enough of it. And there was a wide spectrum of society that came out onto the streets across the country. And what started with farmer protests a year uh, ago had you know, really peaked with thousands of people on the streets. Yeah, and the, the images of that uh, were quite stunning. Um, and I'm sure for, for you who were there and lived through it, it was one thing, but for an international audience to watch, it was, it was also something impactful. You, you know, you've described extremely well the, the domestic political, um, uh, factors, you know, at play that have led up to this and also geopolitical impact in terms of the, the, uh, Ukraine conflict, COVID-19 and, and others, um, you know, Sri Lanka's uh, foreign reserves already becoming apparent in 2021. You, you've already noted the, the decision to ban uh, imports, uh, cars, refrigerators, fertilizers, it, and, and this, you know, desire to avoid uh, the, uh, anything, any support uh, from the IMF, um, that that was a driving factor that wanted to find a solution at home. As you look back on the crisis, um, you know, and obviously, you know, uh, looking back is, is, you know, 2020 now it's easier said than done, but how, what could have been done in your view differently, um, if anything, to avoid the outcome that we've seen? So certainly, uh, on the fertilizer point, simply the government shouldn't have done it, particularly because agriculture is a mainstay of the economy, not just rural subsistence farming, um, where about 30% of the population is still engaged in, but also for export crops like tea, rubber, coconut, spices, cut flowers. These are all uh, big export earners for Sri Lanka. Um, so banning this essential output input to agriculture should, should not have been considered at all. Um, the other things that probably could have been done differently was to acknowledge that Sri Lanka had already neared a tipping point. It wasn't a time to try and experiment with uh, so-called homegrown solutions. Um, there should have been a uh, willingness to pursue some form of, of agreement with the IMF, pursue potentially even approaching our creditors early and uh, had a more orderly uh, default or unwinding of of, of debt. Um, but I think if I look at look back at all of it, what could have been done differently was to simply 
have more inclusive policy making you know there was a, mm. a covid task force the covid uh, task force was uh, president's covid task force was chaired by the army commander not a health professional or a civil administrator um even in designing covid relief packages it was all public servants bureaucrats military officials there was little to no input from you know think tanks or researchers or civil society who understand impacts on families and workers um so uh, this meant all of these these are just some examples but all of these meant that the government wasn't getting outside input wasn't getting honest feedback mm. and there was a bit of an echo chamber where everyone said it can be done it'll be fine uh, we have it we have it under control until they didn't yeah um anush as you know this podcast is the china and the world podcast and so i do want to ask you in the context of what you've just described uh a little bit about china and i will note that uh in your description of what happened you did not mention china once but um of course we know that china extends about 12 billion in loans china has extended over the years uh in the last two decades uh, to sri lanka in the form of both government debt as well as infrastructure financing through china's development banks uh china of course is by no means the only lender international lender to sri lanka but as you know uh in the international debate uh there's been a lot of um discussion and debate about uh china's um activities here some accuse china of burdening developing nations with unsustainable levels of debt uh the phrase debt trap diplomacy is often used in particular with uh sri lanka after china grant was granted by sri lanka a 99 year lease of the hanban tota port in 2017 to help strengthen sri lanka's dollar reserves you did not mention china once in your description of what has happened over the last several years leading up to the conflict i I'd, i'd like to just start out you know how, does china play a role in this if it does how in your in your view um and more broadly speaking just if you could give us a sense of you know how china's investment in sri lanka has evolved over the last decade so to understand china's role um i think we have to go back um beyond the decade to to the end of the war uh, in 2009 so some of uh for, for listeners who might not be familiar sri lanka had this protracted civil conflict with a with an internal you know terrorist group and that was militarily ended in 2009 uh, and at the time sri lanka was desperate for capital to finance infrastructure spending uh, post war reconstruction uh but also to invest in connective infrastructure like roads bridges highways and, and so on which had been neglected for a long time uh, and china was willing to give fairly large envelopes of money with little to no conditions attached uh at the time china was the only lender able to make such large financing outlays and remember it was also the time china was becoming this big exporter of capital uh even before it started packaging it as the belt and road initiative right part of the money sri lanka took on from china um did go into good projects right so 
parts of the Southern Expressway, for, for instance. That Southern Expressway has totally opened up the south of the country, uh, fantastic connectivity between the capital, Colombo, uh, and many districts in the south. Um, part of that was financed by the Chinese, actually, the rest by the ADB. But of course, many other parts of Chinese money went into not so great projects, uh, like the Lotus Tower. The Lotus Tower, it's a telecoms tower constructed with Chinese debt, constructed by a state-owned uh, company. Uh, it's styled, interestingly, as a lotus flower bud, the bud of a lotus flower, which was the campaign logo of the Rajapaksas. So now we have this empty, unused, debt-ridden tower visible from every corner of the city of Colombo as you know, uh, this emblem of the malinvestment made with Chinese money. Mm. Um, there were other projects. You, you know, you mentioned the port, uh, the, the airport nearby to that port, a convention center, and a cricket stadium in that same area, in almost in the middle of an elephant reserve. All of these were made in uh, the Rajapaksa family's home district, and all of them have failed to yield any meaningful returns. Uh, but you have to understand at the time, there was this allure of Chinese money. And I uh, I remember an interesting anecdote of something the Treasury Secretary at the time had reportedly said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here. Uh, he'd said, you know, I spent one hour talking to other lenders like the World Bank and the ADB, and they might give me a few hundred million dollars sometime in the future with conditions I have to follow. I talk to the Chinese for one hour and they'll give me a billion dollars next week. Mm. With no condition, with little limited so conditions. Exactly. So that was kind of the attitude. Who can give us the money, most money, the quickest for the projects we want with the least amount of questions? Those, um, are, so, those are, of course, very, you know, it's very attractive, especially, as you said, after the civil conflict of Sri Lanka and the need to develop roads and ports and all of the rest. Um, you know, there's the obviously downside of, of what you've pointed out, some of those that haven't been completed. Um, what are the other, what are the other downsides that Sri Lanka has um, seen over the years with Chinese lending? How has that manifested itself? One of the other problems was that that type of borrowing had corrosive effects on our system. So even though the debt to China is a fraction of Sri Lanka's total central government debt, foreign and domestic, the manner in which that borrowing was done, the kind of projects the borrowings were done for, had repercussions beyond that quantum of loans would suggest. Um, I think this it's strained economic governance of debt, it strained transparency of debt, it skewed um, how public officials look at value for money. So I, I think um, it, it had these corrosive effects which went beyond just that uh, just that Chinese money and you know because it became so attractive uh, to finance infrastructure this way, I would argue that we didn't really pursue, private capital, for example. You know, Sri, Sri Lanka was one of the 
first countries in our region to pursue a private-public partnership, a PPP, for a port terminal uh, way back in uh, the, the mid to late uh, 1990s. And it was, it's now a very successful port, port terminal, privately operated. It's made Colombo port, um, uh, you know, one of the fastest growing, one of the most competitive, best turnaround time kind of port terminals in the region. And we did that with uh, private, private capital. Uh, so I think this ease in which mm. uh, we got that kind of debt meant that we were a little lazy to pursue the kind of private investments or even the reforms that you need to do to get that kind of FDI. Yeah. And that FDI would perhaps, I think what you're suggesting, entail higher standards for governance, management, transparency, and all the rest. Exactly. And, um, you know, multilaterals like the World Bank and ADB have plenty of those, you know, environmental, social safety checks, you know, um, domestic, adhering to domestic policies around displacement and eviction of people for those infrastructure projects. Uh, but with bilateral lenders, it can be quite different. And China was especially different. Um, I think for them, it was more about cultivating a friendly relationship. Um, and at the time, I don't know now, I think it could change. At the time, asking Sri Lanka for all these checks and balances would have almost been considered rude. Uh, perhaps the thinking is was you, you don't ask friends these kinds of questions or make demands of them. You take them for who they are and give them uh, what they need. Uh, but Paul, I think ultimately, in my mind, there's a, there's a lot being said about Chinese lending and all of those lending practices. But I don't want to let our officials and our systems off so easily. I think ultimately this is on us. Sri Lanka managed its affairs poorly. Our public officials and institutions performed poorly. We had weak public financial management and our voters didn't ask those questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a, it's a good point and an important point to make. And now you have a new uh, leadership in Sri Lanka, a new president. I'll, I'll say his name, but you can tell me if I've said it right. Ranil Wickramasinghe. He's planning now to visit China in the coming weeks, as I understand it, and uh, discuss cooperation on trade, investment, and tourism. Uh, the new president has said publicly that he disagrees with this idea of a, a debt trap concept uh, when it comes to China. Give us a sense, if you could, how, you, how do you expect the new government, the new leadership under the new president to approach the bilateral relationship with, with China? Uh, there's uh, discussions around debt restructuring with China. Um, and, uh, you know, Sri Lanka has uh, requested a debt relief uh, from other lenders, but also China. And how do you expect China to respond to these to these requests? How do you expect those discussions to evolve? Yeah, I think this is one of the most crucial questions right now. And it's something uh, a colleague of mine, Akila Latif, uh, we've written a recent article that will be published soon. Long story short, uh, President Vikramasinghe and the new government would really need to take a proactive approach to negotiating with China and getting China to the table. 
especially knowing the kind of relationship-based lender China is, uh, he the, the president cannot just dispatch you know, foreign debt advisors in suits to go talk to the Chinese. I think engagement will have to be at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the visit, if it happens, I think will be crucial. As for China, we are still unclear what their approach would be. Um, we can probably only look at two pieces of evidence. What have Chinese officials said about the Sri Lankan situation so far? And Secondly, how has China dealt with other countries in debt distress? And in, in this particularly, Sri Lanka is looking closely at Zambia. So on the first, um, there's been a lot of seesawing, you know, blowing hot and cold. Soon after Sri Lanka announced that it will be defaulting on its debts, we heard the Chinese ambassador uh, to Sri Lanka assert that the debt crisis is of Sri Lanka's own doing. The country should pull itself up from its own bootstraps. Um, he also suggested that, uh, rather controversially, that since the bulk of Sri Lanka's foreign debt is to financiers in the West, it's the Western creators who should take most of the hit in that restructure. Um, however, you, you know, more recently, that stance seems to have softened. Mm. Uh, the, the Chinese say that they would support uh, the government's talks with the IMF. They would instruct Chinese banks who have lent to Sri Lanka to support any debt negotiations. Mm. Um, so it, 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 it's really this big question about which way China will go. And um, there's, we don't also know whether what's coming out of Zambia is, is encouraging or not, whether it's even comparable. But the fact that China did agree to join the debt restructure talks, uh, in fact, co-chair that bilateral creditor group with France, I think is somewhat of a positive sign for Sri Lanka as well, mm. um, because ultimately without China, largest bilateral creditor, there really can't be any meaningful uh, debt debt restructure. But of of course, you know, China has typically not liked to take haircuts on its loans. It it wants the debt to sit on its books and the debtor country's books in full. So it might perhaps want only a reprofiling of debt, so extending the maturity or mm-hmm. reducing annual payments. Um, and we'll have to wait and see how this will sit with other bilateral and private creditors uh, who, who might be told to take a bigger hit. Um, and in all of this, I think for Sri Lanka and Sri Lankans on the ground, we are looking at when will relief from... Uh, from the IMF or from some of the bilateral lenders come in. And clearly, without an IMF program approved by the executive board, there is no IMF money coming through. There is no World Bank or ADB money coming through either. And to get that executive board approval, we need to get progress with debt restructure, with the private creators, but also with China. So any delay on the China piece will delay the whole program. Mm. You know, one aspect that you've looked at as well with regard to Zambia um, is the fact that that it, that these restructure talks are being co-chaired with France. Um, and I know that typically China likes to do these negotiations bilaterally, 
um, more quietly uh, out of out of public view. Um, but what do you make of uh, the fact that China has agreed to co-chair the creditor committee with France when it comes to Zambia? And how, how will that apply to Sri Lanka? Is that something that Sri Lanka will push for as well? So I see it as quite a positive development in that China, which has typically liked to get very bespoke, very preferential, one-on-one um, -on -one kind of deals, were willing to join this creditor group and co-chair it with France. But we have to recognize it did take a, a lot of time. You know, Zambia defaulted, I think it was in November 2020. The staff level agreement with the IMF was in December 2021. And it's taken this long to get those uh, creditor uh, agreements in place. So it hasn't been easy. I think there was a lot of back and forth, even with China's participation in that uh, official creditor committee, the G20 framework, and so on. Um, with Sri Lanka, I think there will be some complicating factors. One of which is Sri Lanka is so high now on the radar, probably even more than Zambia, with so many uh, commentators talking about this debt trap diplomacy narrative. Uh, we recently heard um, USAID administrator Samantha Power during a visit to India, you know, singularly mentioned Sri Lanka's uh, issue with China and how China has lent. So I think it, it, it's a little tricky because Sri Lanka is gaining so much attention and you have countries like the US, some of the largest IMF shareholders um, making comments about China and Chinese debt and investment in Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't think we can compare one-to-one -one China's approach to Zambia and China's approach to Sri Lanka. I think the one thing that it does signal is that for the first time, China seems willing to join a common, common group. So I, I would imagine that the Sri Lankan authorities also, hopefully at a very high level, ask China to do something similar, you know, uh, yeah. co-chair a, a credit, bilateral creditor group. Now, who will it co-chair it with? Where will those first meetings be held? What kind of neutral venue they feel comfortable? All these things would need to uh, be worked out. But I think the best case scenario for us is that China agrees to a smoother, uh, smooth path as less complicated for Sri Lanka as possible because, frankly, the crisis is so bad, we can't afford to have it drag out for very long. Well, it's been this has been a, a fascinating discussion, Anush, and you're I really appreciate uh, your insights. My my last question, you know, I just wanted to you know move a little bit beyond Sri Lanka, if we could. I'm, we've talked about Zambia. Uh, China is also a large creditor to a big part of the developing world, um, and you know you've mentioned some of the 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 pressures that countries are under. You've got you know new global interest rate regime. We've got uh, higher uh, pressures of higher inflation. We've got a crisis in Ukraine. And I wonder how you um, kind of see the issue of China's development finance debt sustainability playing out more broadly around the world going forward beyond Sri Lanka's, the Sri Lanka examples or the Zambia examples. I think many countries that have taken on such loans are really having a serious moment of reckoning. Uh, in the past, this narrative about 
Chinese debt causing problems was you know, mainly put forward by external observers and analysts. Domestically, for the longest time in most of our countries, there was much less recognition of the risks, certainly not beyond you know, policy wants like us. Mm-hmm. But with everything that's going on with higher rates, refinancing risks, Russia, Ukraine, various sorts of macro stressors, I think there's much more recognition of these problems among domestic stakeholders in many of our countries now, both political leaders and regular citizens. Um, But at the same time, there is also a recognition that China will continue to be a large capital exporter. You know, particularly in Asia, there's this big infrastructure financing gap. Um, So China would necessarily continue to play a role in development financing in the region. So I think the way China trends in the months ahead will be quite crucial, um, not just for the indebted countries, but I think for China too, as its future, you know, for its future as its capital exporter. If it shows good faith in joining the table of these debt workouts happening in many of our countries, along with the other lenders, I think it can change the game and China will still be an attractive lender after this is all over. Um, and, and perhaps you might know more about this, Paul, that even internally in China, there is a reckoning among the, the CCP about the BRI enterprise, the way in which China has lent and invested. Uh, so hopefully all this would come together to chart a new uh, way, way forward. I would also imagine that uh, there could be a greater push for China to lend more through the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Mm. Um, AIIB has started little bits of lending in countries like ours, and they have adopted a lot of the same safeguard measures and other good practices as the older multilaterals have. Um, So perhaps China might want to channel more of its money through AIIB to ensure better value for money, less controversy, and so on. But the big question is, Will that fit in with China's interest in cultivating really bespoke bilateral relationships? Um, mm. I, I, I don't know. And perhaps the final point about what the rest of the world could do. So we know that the G7 has come out with another funding pot at its latest summit, 600 billion US dollars. Um, I think it's called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment. Right. Uh, to to try and counter the BRI. Correct. But I I don't know how much appetite there is now for new infrastructure borrowing by developing countries that are already so highly in debt Mm. and with global rates rising, refinancing risk and so on. So I would argue that instead, this funding pot should look at how to help ease these countries, retire or swap out high-cost Chinese debt. Um, it, it might sound fanciful, but I can't see other ways how this pot would be useful right now or for in the immediate future. Um, but the real question then would be, what is China's objective function here? Is it to get paid back quickly and they'd be happy to take this country's new money and retire their money? Or is it to continue to hold these loans for leverage? Um, so I guess we'll have to see, but I think what's happening now is a serious moment of reckoning for both the indebted 
countries as well as China. Well, once again, Anushka, thank you very much for your insights. Um, I think you, um, you, you've you added a lot uh, to the debate here, and I know our listeners are going to be very interested. But as you say, there's a lot uh, yet to be determined, um, and we'll have to just watch closely as we go forward, including the the upcoming visit by your new president to China, um, but also to see how China handles these issues going forward. So thank you so much, and we hope to be able to have you back on the China in the World podcast uh, at some point in the future, and we can talk about uh, updates uh, and developments that have taken place. Thanks a lot, Paul. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur, with assistance from Tsai Jingyuan, Spencer Barnett, and Mike Tiernan.